Okay, so you've got your hardcore four-wheel drive, you might be fairly new to this, and you're wondering when it's okay to engage four-wheel drive. That's next. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Website for that, obviously. Or you can just click the card that's up there now, dude. Now, I get this tsunami of questions. It's like a living hell. It's a feedback effect of generating an audience. And I never thought that there would be this tsunami. And a significant proportion of those questions come from people who are new to the four-wheel drive sort of fraternity, the Dingo Piss Creek visiting crowd or intending crowd, okay? And it's all about towing and four-wheel drive and they're sure that the vehicle's got this capability and they're not really sure what to do with it, okay? And the first thing I'd say to you if you are in that camp is when life returns to normal, get training because this is always the way, right? It's the same as going to a racetrack. Nine times out of 10, the vehicle that you put on the racetrack, even if it's just mum's shitbox Camry, it's more capable than you, okay? Nine times out of 10. You might be a hero driver, I'm not talking to you, okay? Same off-road, right? These vehicles like Everest and Pajero Sport and vehicles like that, Tritons and Hiluxes and Rangers, they'll go a hell of a long way off-road in standard trim. It's amazing. And you don't need to go to ARB and get all that shit fitted. What you need to do is, like, software upgrade so that you know how to better exploit the capabilities of these vehicles, okay? That's my central overarching thesis on this. But I've got a question here that I'm sure goes through the mind of many a four-wheel drive owner, recent four-wheel drive owner. And it's in a few parts, and we'll deal with them separately. It's from a guy named Ben Viv... I think that's how you pronounce it. Anyway, Ben says, I've bought a Ranger 3.2 to tow. In the past, I've towed with Prado model year 14 VX, which I unfortunately had to sell due to its 2.5-ton towing max, and my new van's tear weight is 2.3 tonnes. Okay, so if you don't mind, I'm just going to refer to some of these notes here because it's important to get the numbers right when you're talking about towing. And the first thing I did with Ben's question is I did sort of the feasibility study on how's he going with the weights, okay? And there's two things you've got to do here. You've got to evaluate the GVM of the vehicle, like the gross vehicle mass, and then you've got to examine the GCM, which is the combined mass. It's the fully loaded trailer and the fully loaded vehicle together. And I crunched those numbers, and it's kind of interesting because if you say that the trailer's tear weight's 2.3, so I just said, well, let's assume it's three tonnes fully loaded, which they also call the ATM. And the gross combination mass of the Ranger is 6,000, and that's kind of convenient because if we're looking at the combination mass, we can get the trailer for 3,000, and that means the Ranger in its fully loaded condition cannot exceed 3,000 for a total of six, okay? And dead empty, well, with fuel but no people and accessories and things of that nature, 2,278 for the Ranger. That's the Wild Track 3.2 Auto. So Ben's mileage may vary if he's got a different one, but it's in the ballpark of about 2.3 tonnes, okay? And that gives him 722 kilos before he can exceed, or before he will exceed, the GCM, okay? The Gross Combined Mass. 
Then you've got to do a GVM analysis. That's just the Ranger in its fully loaded state, not to exceed 3,200 kilometres. Both of these limits are set by the manufacturer, okay? So the payload of a Ranger not towing anything is 922 kilos. Again, this is for the Wild Track 3.2 auto, all right? And you've got to say to yourself, three-ton trailer out the back, that's going to be 300 kilos on the tow ball, and the vehicle is carrying that, okay? Because it is load imposed on the vehicle by the trailer. It's part of the GVM. You don't use it for a GCM analysis, but you do use the tow ball download for GVM, okay? That's very important. So you get your 922 kilo payload, you gotta take 300 off that. You can only put 622 in the Ranger before you exceed the GVM. Okay? And you think, oh, 622, that's heaps. But if you've got four people and their stuff and a bull bar and you have to have a tow bar, right, and you've got some recovery gear in the back, then, yeah, you can comply with this 622 kilo of remaining payload, but it's not going to be a walk in the park and you definitely want to go to a waybridge and just make sure that you are compliant. Okay, now Ben goes on and this is the crux of his question. My question is around towing in 4H. I know I cannot do this on high traction surfaces. Could I just confirm that it would be okay to tow in 4H on wet main roads and gravel roads to get more traction and control? My Prado felt so safe when towing and I didn't even have ESC on the old van. Okay, so I think we've got to get to the bottom of exactly what happens when you're in one of these old school four-wheel drives like a Ranger with simple 2H, 4H, 4L sort of transfer case. Okay. You've got an engine, a gearbox and a transfer case and the function of the transfer case is to put the vehicle in two-wheel drive like mum and dad's Commodore or something for most of its life on high traction surfaces and then when you need four-wheel drive it engages a front prop shaft that goes down to two drive shafts across to the front wheels and all of a sudden you've got four-wheel drive. Okay, And the problem with that or the potential problem on a high traction surface is that there's no relative motion allowed between the front prop shaft and the rear prop shaft. And that's kind of a problem every time you're not going dead straight. Because, try this if you like as a bit of an experiment, but when you turn any corner, the front wheels travel further than the rear wheels. That's just how this works, okay? And if you want to prove it to yourself, just go to a clay pan halfway to Dingo Piss Creek or something and then just stop and put in a bit of lock and then just drive off and then get out and have a look at your wheel tracks. You will note that the front wheels are going on a wider arc than the rear wheels. That's just how this rolls, literally, okay? And that means that the front prop shaft has to turn faster to do that, okay? And the rear prop shaft has to turn slower. So when they are both engaged and locked together with gears locking them together, okay? What happens is you've got all of this internal stress in every component between the front wheels and the back wheels, okay? And it kind of works like this. The front wheels want to turn faster and the rear wheels want to turn slower. So the driving part, like the driven part and the driving part, let's pretend this is a shaft involved in the process anywhere. One end of it is gonna to wanna to turn faster than the other end. This is not unlike a prop shaft, they're kind of all hollow because uh, these kinds of shapes are efficient at transmitting torque, okay, torsion, whatever. So 
you've got this incredible torsional stress that gets added because if there's traction under those tires, there's nothing to give that relative motion, all right? And that can be a constant velocity joint between the wheel and the side-to-side -side cross axle sort of drive shaft up the front. Or it can be one of the axles inside the diff housing at the back. Or it can be the front prop shaft or the rear prop shaft or the universal joints, right? Because they are all under this additional stress from having 4H selected. And the only sort of pressure relief valve is the reduced coefficient of friction under the tyres. Because if the tyres can slip, it takes this load off. And if you get to an extreme situation here, you'll break something. You'll find a weak link. It might be a universal joint, it might be a drive shaft, it might be a CV joint. You'll break something, okay? And if you don't break something, what'll happen is you'll just grossly accelerate the wear rate, okay? And I'd have to say that I don't think it is okay to engage four-wheel drive on a wet, sealed road, okay? I really don't, because you're only talking about a 30% reduction in grip, ballpark. And here's the other problem, right? The problem's called, like, uh, scientific control. Like, when I was actually working for Wheels magazine for donkey's years, I did all of the tyre tests. And we got together with tyre industry engineers and we figured out a way to do these tests. And I got all these feedback, for all these feedback from these tyre experts, engineers working in the tyre industry. And the big problem is experimental control, okay? Because if you want to test, say, wet stopping distance, then the variable's got to be the tyre and everything else has to be the same, right? So your wet surface has to be controlled. And how do you define wet? Is it just damp, like with a spray bottle, or is it a quarter of an inch of water running over the road, or, or is it like two inches in a torrent running across the road? They're really different situations. So all wet roads are different. And if you've just had a cloud burst and you're driving around the city and you've got all of that rubber and a bit of oil that's been sort of baked into the road for the past three weeks between now and the last cloud burst, then for the first few seconds of the cloud burst, all of that stuff comes up and it's a lubricant and the grip coefficient drops dramatically and then the rain sort of washes that shit away and the road gets grippier, okay? So not all wet roads are the same, but what I would say is if you're in a vehicle like a Ranger or an Everest or, you know, an MUX or a D-Max, one of those old school Massey Ferguson style four-wheel drive systems, if you routinely operate in 4H on a wet road, you will probably not break something, but you will accelerate the wear of all of those under-stress components in the drivetrain. Universal joints, constant velocity joints, things of that nature. Bearings inside the transfer case might be under more pressure. So you'd have to expect them to fail sooner if you do that, okay? And if you do something really dodgy, like you forget and it dries out and you go to turn on a really tight radius, you could easily break something, okay? And this comment that I'm making about how do you control it and what's the definition of wet, that also pertains to like dirt roads because there are some dirt roads that are flat out as grippy as an international airstrip. And there are other dirt roads that are really slippery like bulldust this thick or really muddy and in those conditions obviously you'd want to engage 4H and it's really handy in those situations in my view to buy a four-wheel drive that has the capacity to engage on the fly 
Now, on-the-fly engagement means you're doing 80 or something, you see a slippery bit ahead, you flick the lever or something from 2H to 4H, and then some solenoids do the rest. The pro tip on that, okay, if you've got a lot of steering lock-in at that time, you probably won't be able to engage 4H because you need to get to reasonable synchronous speed of the front and rear shafts before the mechanism can engage, all right? The shafts need to be turning at the same rate before they can grab one another. That's just how this rolls, okay? And you'd want to bear that in mind because if you're doing a bit of skid correction here, a bit of skid correction there, and you reach down and go 4H, it's not going to happen until you get to that point of we're straight ahead, front and rear shaft synchronized, we can engage, okay? That's kind of how this works. So I hope that helps with any uncertainty with these vehicles, because if you break something inside the transfer case, it's gonna be kind of expensive, okay? And if you drop a universal joint or so, you know, a constant velocity joint out there on the road to Dingo Piss Creek, Jesus, could be quite a weight and uh, quite a long way to get the vehicle towed as well. So there's all of that. I. I think that basically covers that part of um, Ben's question. The, f the last bit, of course, is where he says, my new van will have ESC and I'll have the Red Arc Tow Pro in the ute, but just wanted to get your thoughts on this as so many experts have given me different answers. Many, many thanks. Look, I think it's flat out awesome that you're getting the latest technology because the latest technology helps in the van and in the vehicle. That rocks, okay? But I also want you to know that the technology is not a substitute for more fundamental protections that you need to put in place. Because I want you to be out there on the road doing what you love doing, even though I put shit on it endlessly all the time. I actually really support people who do what they love doing. Like, that's what you need to do. And if lockdown has taught you anything, it's that when your freedoms are reduced, I guess when you get them back again, maybe you won't take them for granted. Like, I certainly hope so, and I ho certainly hope you get the chance to do that again pretty soon, okay? But you've got this tech, and there's a thing, a worrying thing about the human condition in psychology, and it's called risk homeostasis. And what it typically means is, I'll give you an example. If you get someone in a dangerous position, or potentially dangerous position, and you give them a hard hat and a vest, right? They tend to think that there's some protection involved in that, so they'd be motivated to take slightly more risk so that their perceived amount of risk remains constant, hence the stasis, right? Risk homeostasis. And don't do that. If you buy a safe van and a safe vehicle, the only way that can be safer for you is if you are just as diligent as you were before. Okay, so you've got to be checking the tire pressures, you've got to be on the way bridge, you've got to get the download right, you've got to make sure that nothing has shifted so that you're not unloading the tow ball, which is the fastest way to get the death wobble thing happening. And then you've got to drive conservatively because if that van weighs 2.5 to 3 tonnes, which I suspect it will when you're out there doing what you love, that's not a trivial assignment, dude. It's really not. It's something you have to be on top of, and it is potentially risky, okay? And not only that, if you're going, I don't know, 5,000 Ks across the country and 5,000 Ks back, that's a lot more exposure to whatever roll of the dice can go wrong than it is if you're just towing a boat 5 Ks to the boat ramp 
and back once a week, once a month, whatever. Your exposure to that hazard potentially is much higher and therefore you've got to be on it. And if you don't feel like you're on it, then maybe you need to take a break that day. But you've got to come up with, it's not really a safe work system because you're not at work. But if you treated it like you were at work, you'd have to have a safe working system around towing. And, you know, the techo protections offered by the van and the vehicle, two thumbs up, dude. They're awesome. They're going to make things better. But only if you complete the rest of the jigsaw puzzle. So anyway, had to come to you unscripted again today because I'm in the middle of this video production job from hell. It's taken me friggin' forever. And I'll be pumping that out in due course. But... If I waited for that, I wouldn't be talking to you now. So hopefully that's answered Ben's question. Hopefully you've had something to divert you for 15 or 20 minutes on lockdown. And my work here is done.